if you see me grimace, my finger is still broken, okay? And I'm having a really hard time. So, but tape it. Duct tape. It's the, basically, I pulverized, what, like, the bone that's underneath my uh, fingernail right here, so it's pulverized. And, and, and I, was, I was lifting one of these chairs this week, and I reached down, and it's been about four weeks tomorrow, say it'll take eight weeks to heal, but I'd reached down, and it, and it fell in one of those tabs, and I went like this, and I went, and I'm like, ah. I was doing so well. That's why I'm supposed to wear that little brace thing. My wife's a nurse. She's all, where's your brace thing? I'm like, it's at home. Whatever. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. Don't buy tape. They talk about this and staff me. I'm like, this is a horrible idea. <laughs> Nobody's going to want to tape me. To, I mean, seriously, we should, we should tape save into a wall. <laughs> I mean, seriously, you're going to get like three pieces of tape on me. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> Don't buy tape. Jesus says... The Lord is speaking right now. And he says, don't buy tape. I am the poor in spirit. Oh, and that's from an elder. Oh, my goodness. I have no love. This morning, my wife's getting ready, and she's wearing this shirt. that, And I go, oh, I got a shirt that looks like that. So I go in, and I grab it. And she hates it when I do this, because she's like, ah. I go, we're twinsies. And she hates it when I do this, but I'm always like, no, look at you and me. Woo. I want people to know you are mine. Don't you go looking at her. It's my wife. So anyway, she's, half the time when I do this, she'll change into something else. And I'm like, ah, curses. But today she wore it. So every time I, I'm like. <laughs> and she hates it. Probably as much as I hate the idea of tape day. So there you go. Welcome to Element. My name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors here. Don't buy tape, Jesus said. Uh, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. In those sermon notes, you'll have some uh, extra stuff that we, that we don't talk about this morning, but also some questions on the back. If you're involved in the gospel community, you can ask those there. Or if you're not, you can talk about them with your family or with your friends sometime this week so that you kind of take the message a little bit deeper. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Version. Click on Live in Version. It'll bring us up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get the sermon notes and the verses and all that goes along with today's message. Why don't you stand me reading God's word, and we'll get started. This is Romans chapter 7, verse 6. It says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would have us be a people who understand what it means to serve and live in the way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. That we'd understand the Sermon on the Mount and the, and the words that you say and the fulfillment of who you are so our lives are lived completely different than they were before. Amen. Have a seat. Okay, so this is Sermon on the Mount. This is week 16. And in my notes I put, I've got a lot to get through today. Which, I seem like I say that a lot. So I'm going to talk really fast and still get through it today. Open to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Uh, this is a section of scripture a lot of people misquote and misunderstand in more ways than I can adequately explain. And so what I'm going to do is we're going to read it, and then we're going to take a big step back. We're going to look at a big overview of it so the whole thing comes into context. I'm not really going to deal verse by verse. I'm going to deal with the entire overall context of it so the whole thing makes sense 
since. This is Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 20. Uh, Jesus gets here in a Sermon on the Mount. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And that's also related to the word fulfill. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Tough words. Tough words. Well, we're going to talk about that this morning. Uh, last week, we started this a little bit, and I told you one of the things Jesus didn't come to do was lower the bar. You know, like a lot of churches today, you know, what's the least I have to believe in order to be saved? Jesus didn't lower the bar. He basically said, this is what the bar always has been, and that's what he talks about. Now, when you hear about the law and the prophets, the law is what's called the Torah. These are the first five books of the Old Testament. The prophets are the prophetic writings of the Old Testament, and Jesus says they are valid, and yet not how a wooden letteralist would think. I'll explain to you what that means. Today there are what's called a literalist and what's called a wooden letteralist. A wooden letteralist would say, if you said, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse, they'd start making you horse burgers, right? If you said, I'm starving, the next day you would find your picture on Compassion International's website asking for 38 bucks to help feed you for a month. If you called them on the phone and you said, hey, I'll be there in a second, they'd be like, oh, hey, you're late. Okay? That's, that's a wooden literalist. Now, a literalist means we take what the scriptures say because we literally believe what the scriptures say, but it's in context of understanding. And this is important through the Sermon on the Mount because there's a few of these things in there that it's like, ooh, that's kind of odd. You understand it literally what Jesus means, but literally in context. And so Jesus says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. How does that fit with the first verse we read this morning, Romans 7, 6? But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So is Jesus schizophrenic? Are the scriptures schizophrenic? Uh, How are we saved by grace? And yet he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, is that confusing to you at all? Okay, good. A quarter of you. The rest of you, you're just Bible scholars and wonderful. Okay, the the, the first key to this is understanding what and who Jesus is and was. Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them. I have come to fulfill them. That's very important. Jesus was the fulfillment and is the fulfillment of all that God was doing through the Old Testament law. Ten times Jesus uses these words, I have come or I have not come. Four times in Matthew, once in Luke, five times in John to explain the reality of himself and the law that he is fulfilling this law. And last week I told you that Jesus says this because his disciples had a tendency to be just a little bit slow. Kind of like you and me. We're just a little bit dull. And so he's kind of talking them through this. He didn't want them thinking he was saying something he wasn't saying. He didn't come to get rid of the law. He came to show the reality of the law. And so today I want to explain what that means and how these verses kind of relate. I'm going to start that by asking a question that I heard somebody else ask. I thought this is a good way to start this. So the question is, how would you live if you knew you couldn't be beaten? How would you live? And I don't mean you'd always be successful from a worldly point of view. I mean that you actually believed every day that you were really in the hands of a loving, powerful, holy, omniscient, unshakable God. And that he is going to win or he actually already has won the victory over everything. And therefore, you cannot be defeated. Not by sin, not by guilt, not by shame, not by failure, not by loss. What if we really lived and knew that no matter what the world throws at us, not even death, nothing could defeat us? What if we lived that way? Do you know that the scriptures talk about this fundamental lifestyle and what that looks like? You know what the scripture calls that? Worship. 
That's what the scripture calls it, worship. And so in the modern church, we tend to use the word worship for singing. And so we come and we say things like, oh, I like the worship or I didn't like the worship today. Like it's all about you. I mean, put yourself in the place of God much? Bing. Huh? You know, some people also, they'll, they'll say things like, well, you know, worship is about what I do or what I don't do. And so it becomes a lot of laws and things like that. And in a sense, both of those could be a little bit true because it's about how we sing. It's about how we live with our lives, but so much more than that. John Ortberg says it like this. He says, worship is the fundamental mindset of loving life with God. The fundamental mindset of loving life with God. We love life with God, and so we live in a certain way. Harold Best writes a book called Unceasing Worship, and in this book he says this, We were created continuously outpouring. Not continuous outpourers. We weren't created only to worship, because that means God would lack something in his own character. But we are a people who were made to worship. Part of our makeup is that we worship, but we weren't created simply just to worship. He says, Our God is marked by unceasing outpouring. From eternity past, the Father, Son, and spirit are unceasing in their outpouring of love, communication, adoration, and affection of one to another. And so God makes us in, a, in his image, in his likeness. And so we are outpourers. It becomes unceasing. We outpour all the time in our lives. We are worshipers. That means we are all living and worshiping and mirroring something, whether it's a person, a thing, a car, a sports team, a cause, a status, an experience. In a Christian sense, he says, worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am, all that I do, and all that can, I, I can ever become in light of a chosen or choosing God. That is worship. So to be an image bearer, which God says we are in the book of Genesis, is to be a worshiper. We are to be spirit-filled and spirit-led worshipers. Genesis 2, 7, then the, Lord, then the Lord God formed the man of dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. That is where the Holy Spirit first comes into man for the very first time. And God's intent in that is that we would bear his image, that we would worship him. We would be unceasing in out, on our outpouring all to his glory, and that mankind would be his priests and the earth would be the temple. And so when God comes and he gives the law and brought the prophets, all that Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, God is essentially coming to his people and teaching the human race how to worship again from scratch. Because after the fall, they had broken relationship with God. So God had to teach them again. The biggest point of the law and the prophets all points to Jesus. Without the law, without the prophets, we would never understand Jesus or his mission or how we are saved because of what he has done. And so we are created to continuously outpour to worship. But how do you worship God in a way that would honor him and build character in us? This is what the human race didn't know because of the fall. And so this is what the law was there for. It's the, the Bible becomes this developmental story of stage on stage on stage. After the, after the Exodus in the Old Testament, God's people are living in this desert and they lived in tents. So what does God do? God says, build me a tent, build me a tabernacle, and I will live among you. So he lives in a tent like his people. When his people go and they live in the city of Jerusalem, they live in constructions like houses. And so God says, build me a temple. I will live in a construction just like you. And so while they're wandering around in the wilderness out in the desert, he's teaching his people all about worship. I want you to build me a tabernacle. Every time you look at it, I want you to remember you're not alone. I am with you. And so God uses this tent to teach his people all the lessons of what it means to make life an act of worship with and to him. That's what the law was about. It's all teaching people about worship. The fulfillment is the reality that comes in Jesus Christ. So how does this teach us the reality about worship? Glad you asked. I'm going to answer that this morning for you. Uh, true worship, true life with God. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 25. 
And I'm going to give you four things of what true worship really is or what it was meant to be. Number one, worship was meant to be costly. Worship was meant to be costly. It's important for us today in our world because we live in a comfort-based society. We want to get more things that make us more and more comfort. Uh, and then the things that we don't use that don't bring us comfort that we buy, we throw away. Those things we don't consume, we just get tossed. Like we had a garage sale yesterday, whatever it didn't sell, went down to the Goodwill. You know, when you drive it off and throw it out your window so they don't say, hey, you can't drop that off, boom, wah, you know. <laughs> My garbage can's full, you get it, you know, that kind of thing. You know, that, that's our society. We're supposed to make worship of God costly. So in Exodus 25, these are the beginnings of the instructions for this tent. Now, a lot of the book of Exodus are instructions of how to build this tabernacle, how to build, how to build this tent. Exodus 25, verse 2, God begins by saying, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. Now go to verse 8 and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And so God comes, as he's teaching his people the connection here between worship and giving, he's doing this in the idea of building him this tent and this place to come and worship him. The really only worship that matters in the end becomes costly worship, where we give something. And this giving, God says, is to be strictly voluntary. He says, take an offering from everybody whose hearts prompt them to give. And Exodus goes on to list what's actually needed. Gold, silver, bronze, precious gems, the finest fabrics. Why are they to give all these expensive things? For the same reason, if you're a guy and you're marrying a girl, you give her an expensive wedding band. It's like gold or white gold, and it's got jewels in it. It's got something in it. Because you want to say, you are worth more to me than all the money in the world. I see. girl's like, that's right. <laughs> a big wedding band. That's what I want. So, and, and that's the idea, that, that it becomes costly, because what you love becomes costly in your life. Where love is involved, you want to give something that says to the one you love, I treasure you. The house that my wife and I live in right now, you know, it's, we bought it at the bottom of the foreclosure market, but, I mean, it took us 20 years to get there. You know, we, we rent and rent, and we bought, and then we rented again and did all this crazy stuff. And finally, when she saw this house, she goes, that's the house I want. That's it. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, I can't afford this thing. I'm like, I'm going to have beans and rice for the rest of my life. You know, but she's like, she's like, she fell in love with this house. And so I'm like, man, you know what? I got to get this house. I got to get this. And because I treasure her so much. And I think I did live on beans and rice for a while. And I hate beans almost as much as duct tape. But that's the idea. When you have a heart that, that loves, you, you long for the opportunity to honor. And this is part of why worship becomes costly. Israel understood this. They are filled with such love for God that he would live in their midst, that he would bring them out of slavery. They actually don't stop giving. Go to Exodus chapter 36, 11 chapters over to the right. They give so much that the workers have to go to Moses and they say, tell the people we're oversupplied. they got to stop giving. They're giving too much. You've got to cut this off. Exodus 36, verses 6 and 7. So Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing. For the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. I mean, I love that picture. Bring what you want. And it was too much. I mean, I element, we don't pass a plate for an offering. We have offering boxes in the sidewall and the back. And sometimes people say, is the offering going to be enough? Sometimes no. But a lot of times it is. And this is the thing where we want God's spirit to prompt our hearts into what we're supposed to give and to what we're supposed to do. I mean, when, when Moses did that, the Israelites brought too much. I mean, out here, you know, element... In two and a half years, we will no longer have this building, and we've got to be somewhere. So we bought this piece of property out there, and we're hoping to build a building to have a permanent home. It's not going to be the Taj Mahal, but hopefully it will have some air conditioning. Amen? 
Okay, yeah, get excited about that. So, you know, and, and think about that. What if we didn't have to do a building campaign, but people just gave, and we're at the point where it's like, boom, we just could do it. I mean, and even more than that, what if it came to the point where there were, like, no more homeless people to shelter? And no more, you know, under-resourced kids to educate anymore. That there was no more unreached people on this planet. Because people gave so much that everybody was actually reached. There was a day when people's hearts got so moved because they cared about God so much that they said, we just can't take anymore. And see, this is what becomes crazy about money today, is that a lot of it depends on how you look at it. Who Do you think it's yours or do you think it's God? When you think it's yours, you want to hold on to it. How much money of mine does God want from me? So, what is this? 20 bucks. Anybody want 20 bucks? Ooh, first one. It's not fake. I swear I didn't print it. Okay. So, okay, so I, I just gave her 20 bucks. Now, you can do whatever you want with that 20 bucks, but you've got to remember, that came from a church. That, that came from a man of God, a pastor, has handed that to you. Guy in first service bought. Anybody want to take this responsibility? Right. The, guy, the guy in first. This guy in first service bought duct tape. Yeah, that's what happens. Now think about this. I mean, it's it's like that's a huge responsibility. And yet, and we when we think about all that we have, we think it's ours. It's not, it's God's. I mean, think about that. It's not just a pastor that gives it to you. It's God. In the scriptures, it t- says that God even gives us the ability in our minds to work and make money. It all comes from His hands. But all determines how we end up seeing it. When we see it as ours, we make money our own God. Money rules our lives. I mean, I was going to do 100 bucks, but I thought you guys were cheaper than that. Hey, first of all, I said 100 bucks. Someone goes, 100 bucks. The board would kill me if I gave out $100 bills. Okay, so I'm just throwing it out there. But, I mean, mean, think about that. In costly worship, we remember that God is God and money is not, that it all comes from his hand. In costly worship, that's what we remember. And in, in America, that's really important to remember, what God is teaching costly worship. That's the first thing. The second thing is that worship was meant to be central. It's meant to be central. See, this is what the law and the prophets and Jesus is talking about. We make worship central to our lives. We make worship the preoccupation of all of our moments of every single day. And that's something else that God teaches with his tent as they're getting this law, as they're going out, you know, through the desert in, in this wilderness. In the ancient world, you have lots of nations, and a lot of nations had a lot of temples. Each nation would have a ton of them. What is unique about Israel is that they only had one. They had one. We're in America used to lots of churches. You know, we like Baskin Robbins, you know, all kinds of Jesus everywhere. But, you know, in Israel, they didn't have many houses of worship. They had one. They didn't have many tabernacles. They had one because they only had one God. That's really important. And this is a way of helping them to remember. Deuteronomy 6.4. I think in your notes I have 6.8. I'm really sorry. It's 6.4. It says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I mean, that's one. It's not just about, you know, that there's one God. It's also about this idea of location. God kept trying to get them to remember this and understand this. Later, when they're their own country, you know, Jerusalem was the place where the temple is. But while they're wandering around in the wilderness, God teaches them about this by this tent that's in their midst. In Numbers 2, God tells Moses that they should always set their camp up in a certain way. So here's a picture of what the camp would look like. So you have all of these tribes around the outside, and right in the middle, that's that tabernacle. That's that tent of God. Here's another picture of what it would look like. Okay? 
So you got that in the middle. You got all the tribes camping around that. And, and this is important because in that, in that time and in that area, this was like God's here. The Levites are the bodyguards around him, and the rest of the, the Israelites are like this, this army around him. And this is how the ancient world would actually move and set up their armies in this ancient nomadic world. He would have a king who would be in the middle like this. Then you have his bodyguard around him. Then you have the rest of the army that's spanned out from there. So God uses that formation. And he's doing this to under, make them understand. So here's the priest. Here I am. Here's where you are. So no matter where you go, you will understand that he's our king. Our king is in our midst. Our king is traveling with us. Our king goes with us. He is the one we will obey. This is all in what Israel would call the law. All of it is found in there going stage by stage. And part of what's also unique about this law is that God brings together the idea of worshiping him and loving people together. No other law did this in any other country. Leviticus 19.18, God says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is really practical, very practical. I mean, imagine your neighbor is, you know, driving their donkey down the street and they run over your olive tree. I mean, I don't know what happens in the ancient world, you know. They got mud on your new robe. I don't know. Anyway, and you're all irritated. I want to get that guy back. Oh, man. And you, so you're, you're all angry and you want to have some retribution. Or maybe you're lusting after something they have. They're the 1% and you're 99 and you're just angry. About, you know, and you're all irritated. And as you're starting to walk over to like confront them about something, you'd remember because you'd see God in the midst. And you would think, he is our king. He is with us. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It would change everything. You would realize that, that God isn't just there hovering over you. He's actually in your midst. And this is also what's important in the New Testament when the Apostle Paul says, through the Spirit, and we believe in Jesus Christ, God comes and takes up residence in us. And so he is always with us. No matter what we do, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's something we have to understand. And so this tent for them, this is a place of daily life. The tabernacle is built like a residence for people who lived in this nomadic world. Every day there was a golden lampstand. It would be lit. Every day there was an altar. They would burn incense on this. Every day there was a table. It's called the table of presence. On this table there are 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. They would call this the bread of the presence. And there's nothing like the smell of fresh bread. Just go to Subway at lunch. It's like amazing, right? And all these rituals look a little odd to us. We don't kind of understand them that much. They kind of seem meaningless, but not to the people who live them. You have a lit lampstand, burning incense, fresh bread. These are all common indications in a Middle Eastern nomadic culture that someone's at home and that someone says, you're welcome here. I will care for you. I will feed you. I have a light on for you to come here. God is teaching his people to make worship of him central to the daily activities of their lives. Have you ever thought about doing that? living in such a way that worship of him becomes central to your life. How do you find concrete ways to begin to do that? I think this would be, is good discussions for families to have, for gospel communities to have, you know, for friends to have with each other. You know, how do you begin to do this? You can get creative around it, I think. I mean, imagine uh, you, you drive around your car a lot, okay? Most of us do. You roll up your windows, turn on the AC so it doesn't get all hot, and then crank up the music. Like, maybe you like worship music. Just sing like, ah, it's California. No one's going to look at you weird. I I'm driving the other day, and I see this girl. She's, like, shaving her pits, putting on her makeup, talking on her phone, reading the newspaper, changing her clothes. I'm like, and no one's looking twice. I'm not looking twice either. I'm like, ooh. You know. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of, do whatever you, I mean, sing out. There, there's all these things. Maybe you work in a place, and you have a desk. Uh, I have all these little things on my desk. People call it trash. What they are, the reminders, little things to me of who God is and what God is doing. It reminds me to worship. I have actually a rock on my desk. Actually, I just moved my office and I can't find it right now. But I have this rock on my desk that reminds me to worship God from the very first sermon I ever preached. It wasn't that good of a sermon. Probably better than this one, but, you know, whatever. Okay. 
You know, and, and, I, and you remember these things in there. I have, I have a knife that a friend from Indonesia gave to me. And every time someone irritates me in my office, I think about the knife. <laughs> Brother Lawrence is a monk in the 17th century, and he wrote this. Whatever we do, we should stop for a few minutes as often as possible to praise God from the depths of our hearts, to enjoy him there in secret. Worship was meant to be central to our lives. Thirdly, worship was meant to be pure. Is meant to be pure. This is, again, why the Sermon on the Mount, God gives his rightness to us as a people, so we become pure. So we give worship from this pure heart because we live in an impure world, and we are surrounded by our own sin and the sin of others. Now, in this tent that Israel had in the giving of the law and understanding all of this, in this tent, you had a huge bronze altar. It was seven and a half feet square, four and a half feet tall. Every morning, every night, a sacrifice would be offered on this altar. Every morning, every night, people would be reminded of their sin that has separated them from God and separated them from each other. And that they were to be a people who understood that God is in their midst and he is taking care of that sin. They're supposed to remember that sin leads to death. That's what the reminder was. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Sin must be atoned for. So every morning, every night, blood would be shed. It's a reminder. I don't come to this tent as someone who is entitled to come here. I'm not doing God some kind of favor by showing up. I come as someone who needed to be forgiven. So when we approach God understanding our state before his grace, we come differently than if we come entitled. We come poor in spirit. That's why Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount the way that he did. Uh, a couple months ago, I was driving out of my bank, and I bumped into this car in front of me. Uh, and I don't, I don't know if, if you ever do that, you know, the sound of like fiberglass on fiberglass or metal on metal, if it was like a few years ago, or car on car. It's just very distinctive, right? And every time you hear, it's like, oh, I'm sick to my stomach. Why is that? Because I just hit somebody. That, that, that's what it is. And so I, I have these thoughts. My first thought is, God, please don't let there be any damage. And I say, God, you know, please uh, let it be a beater car they don't care about. And my third prayer is, God, please let them be okay. That's about my order right there, right? Sorry, it's just true. I got to tell you, that, that's, that's what happens. And so, you know, I get out and it is a beater car to me. It's like a 1990 Honda Civic. Anybody got one? I'm just checking, all right? Just checking, okay? So I didn't think it was going to be a big deal. Oh, my goodness. It was a big deal. The lady was driving her husband's car. I'm like, get your husband a better car. He's a man. Give him a truck. You know, but oh, no. Then if I hit it, I would just be truck on truck and no damage. Be like, sweet, hit you, boom, and just go home. But no, it was a little Honda Civic. Anyway, so, you know, I get out, and I'm like, I'm like oh, my goodness, I'm really sorry. And they acted like I scratched, I scratched their perfection. You know, so I say I'm sorry. They don't really care. So I say I'm sorry. I'm a pastor at a local church. They don't care. I don't hardly pull the pastor card, but when they're really mad, I'm trying to get them to calm down, right? So it didn't help at all. So I said, okay, look, I'm really sorry. I'm a pastor at a local church. My name is James Fairfield. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't. Say that. I actually gave my name. But, you know, and, and this, is the, this is the idea. In their eyes, I had scratched perfection. No matter what you do, it's been scratched. You can paint over it. It can look like it's brand new, but they will always know there is that scratch there. It's been marred somehow. When we approach God in worship, you know, we can't approach like we're doing him a favor. We don't come as people who are entitled to come. We come as a forgiven people because we have ruined perfection. All of us have room perfection. We have damaged the people we're supposed to love. We have damaged ourselves because we come as people who have lied and cheated and deceived and envied and coveted and judged others and condemned and gossiped and slandered. I mean, I am the last person in the world who deserves to come into the Holy of Holies. But God has done something wonderful in the person of Jesus. He has fulfilled the law. 
And the tabernacle, there's this outside area. Then there's the courtyard, and then there's the tent. Then there's the holy place inside the tent. And then in the very central part, the holy of holies, the most central place. And this is kind of like a resonance. The farther you go in, the more holy it gets. It's like, you know, uh, it's like your bedroom. That's like the most holy place in your house where the magic happens. You know, it's like, it's like the most holy place in your house. And so the deeper you go in, there, there it is. And all the materials that were used, you had the metals, like you had bronze in the courtyard, silver in the tent, but gold in the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was completely overlaid with gold. It was the holiest, most precious place. It was so holy that it could only be entered one day a year, the seventh day of the tenth month. It could only be entered by the high priest, just him. And what he would do, the high priest, before he went in there, is he wouldn't see anybody for a week. He would seclude himself so he didn't cut, touch anything unclean. Then he'd go before he went in there, and he'd wash himself, and he'd dress in new clothes and go in and offer a sacrifice for himself. He'd come back out. He would bathe himself, put on new clothes again, walk in, sacrifice for the people. On that day, nobody in Israel worked. Nobody in Israel ate. Everybody fasted. Because what they wanted to do is they wanted to see, is God still with us? Has God forgiven us? Is he still there? And when this, when this guy went in, the, these rabbis, ancient rabbis would say, the high priest was not to remain too long in the Holy of Holies, lest he put Israel to terror. Because if he stayed in there and he died, it's like, oh, has God not forgiven us? Is God not with us anymore? But he would come out and everybody would breathe a sigh of relief and say, yes, God has forgiven us. God is still with us. This is all in preparation, pointing for the day when the great high priest Jesus would come. And he would make the great final sacrifice, which was not an animal, but was his own blood shed on a cross to accomplish atonement, the great payment, which was for the forgiveness of our sins, to fulfill the whole of the law of God. This fulfillment that Jesus reminds us about in the Sermon on the Mount is what it would look like when the whole earth becomes God's residence, that the whole earth becomes the Holy of Holies, God's intimate dwelling. And this is why when Jesus dies, there's a curtain that separates the Holy of Holies from the holiest place from the rest of the temple. There's a curtain, and it is torn from the top to the bottom. God to us. And this isn't just so that we get to go in. It's the idea that God has now gone out. That the entire earth is now the Holy of Holies, the place where God sends his people out into. Step by step, place by place, where his people that love him go becomes the Holy of Holies because God is sending his people. In the final vision of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 21, John says, When everything is restored, heavens, new earth, in that vision, the streets of the heavenly city are paved with gold. And you hear this all the time. It's been so misunderstood. Oh, money means so little to God that he paves the streets with it. Blah, blah, blah. This is why you don't read books that get their theology from a three-year-old boy. Okay? All right. You don't even know what I'm talking about. That's okay. All right? This is the idea. The reason that the streets are paved with gold, you know, is not because gold line designed heaven. All right? The reason the streets are paved with gold is because in the Old Testament, the Holy of Holies was, was entirely overlaid. It was entirely paved with gold. All of it was paved with gold. In John's vision, we're told this great city of heaven, it is four square. And its length is the same as its width. That is not coincidental because the Holy of Holies was four square. Its length was the same as its width. And so what John is saying in the book of Revelation is there will be a day when all of this creation is the holy of holies. It is the most holy place. That's what he is saying. And that's what we have to understand, because it's going to be perfect. It's going to be ruled over by a great and loving and good God who has fulfilled the law in the Son. Fourthly, we are supposed to make worship joyful. Worship was meant to be joyful. Okay, whatever. 
All God has promised is going to happen, and that's very important, so I make it joyful. I mean, far more than God needs us to worship, we need to worship. Because in worship, we remember what God has done for us and what he continues to do for us. In worship, remember that anybody who stands with Jesus will not be defeated because he won the ultimate victory. And it doesn't really matter what you're going through at this point. Difficulty, pain, obstacle. Anybody who stands with Jesus has victory over everything that has troubled the human race ever since the fall. And therefore, we are called to joy. And worship is joy. And I know we all have different comfort levels of expressions in worship when we're in this room. I, I get that. Sometimes we sing this song called Enough. You know, we stand and lift up our hands and nobody stands up and lifts up their hands. You know, I, I became a Christian when I was going to this Nazarene church. And they used to sing these hymns all the time. And they have this hymn called Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. And nobody would stand up. And I'm like, that's weird. You know, whatever. Why, why are we singing this? You know, but and this is also the idea of understanding that worship is more than just song. I mean, quite honestly, I don't care if you sat on your butt the entire time in here when we're singing songs. As long as that expression of worship boils up in you and it's lived outside of these walls, inexpressive worship. That the entire world knows who Jesus is because of how you begin to love and how you begin to live because of what he has done in you by fulfilling the law. I mean, this is the idea. Through all the ages, whenever the church faced suffering and persecution and impoverishment, they exploded in worship. And it wasn't just song. It was they loved the people that were persecuting them. They reached out to those who hated them. More and greater expressions of worship. And so Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he came to fulfill the law. He was the fulfillment of the worship. In Jesus, you see every step that God took through every place in the Old Testament come to fruition. The reason he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That is all about worship. It's why in the Sermon on the Mount, he already says that God's rightness has been given to us. Exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. Why? Because firstly, their worship wasn't long enough. It had no reach. I'm not talking like three hours worth. I'm talking it had no reach. It was all about outward observances. When true worship is about our hearts acting out what we realize God has already done in us and for us. Secondly, their worship wasn't broad enough. They had this narrow view and they whittled down the law to a list of do's and don'ts. It didn't see the worship God intended. Their worship wasn't deep enough because they judged everybody on what they did, not on what God had already done for them. And their worship wasn't high enough. It was satisfied with making all these laws and regulations less than it was. It was making about rules and not about worship. That is what it was. They had no aspiration to see the person into whom all the law pointed to because all the law pointed to Jesus. And they didn't want to see it. And in the end, they crucify him because they didn't want to see it. I want to show you one last picture. If you're up on a mountain, you look down to Israel's camp and you saw how it would set up in the wilderness after the, you know, the giving of the law, all these questions about fulfillment. This is what you would see. What does it look like? Cross. You know, crucifixion wasn't invented until 800 years after this. They had no idea. They were going, oh, or we're going to have a Messiah that's coming. He's going to die on a cross. They had no idea. Judah's the biggest tribe, so that's why it's kind of elongated there. But boom. That's what you see. Who's in the center of it all? God's tent, God's tabernacle. Jesus comes. He tabernacled among us. He lived among us. God in the flesh. This is what's amazing about this. This is fulfillment. Jesus doesn't come to get rid of the law. He fulfills the entirety of the law that stood against us himself. You ever see what happens like the Super Bowl, something like that, or like NBA Finals or World Series, somebody's favorite team wins? What do people do? Burn cars, go nuts, just kind of crazy, right, all that kind of stuff. And I understand that when we talk about Jesus, I don't expect you to burn cars and turn things over. Okay, that would just be weird and odd and uh, sin, so don't burn cars, okay? Um, 
But sometimes I wonder, because we get together and we celebrate that Jesus died for our sins, that Jesus fulfills the law, he removes the regulation that stood against us, he saves us from hell, he overcomes guilt, was raised from the dead, we will share in his triumphs for all of eternity. Maybe once in a while we want to say, Amen. Maybe once in a while we want to say, Amen. Amen. Wow. Again, it's not about me trying to get a response from you. What I want your response to be is outside these walls. Living, worshiping, loving Jesus. The law and the prophets, fulfillment, worship, we make it joyful. When we realize it's not just worship for ourselves. It's when we understand and live of the celebration of the crucified suffering, risen king's presence in our world. We take it out into everything that we do. I mean, you can sing, and we should sing. You can dance. I don't dance that well, but you can if you want to. We confess, we pray, we give, we love, we sacrifice, we serve. And it's like the Holy of Holies keeps coming down this curtain again and again and again. And God's word keeps spreading. And God's glory is made known, and heaven rejoices. And we have some little sense of what lies before us in eternity. The limitless love of our victorious God, who has saved us. It's really amazing. And I could be wrong, but I don't really think I am that often, okay? So <laughs> I believe this is what the entire law and the prophets point to, Jesus. It's why we always talk about Jesus. It's why we worship him. It's why when we talk about these things, I am constantly saying it's about how you live outside these walls. I mean, we do gather corporately. We do sing these songs together. We do honor Jesus by coming together and giving and, you know, and praying with one another and, and getting together in our gospel communities and things like that. We do honor him in all those ways. But it's also that expression of worship, of how you treat your family, of how you treat your coworkers, of how you treat the people at your school and your teachers and the ones that hate you and the ones that like you and the ones that could really care less about you. It's, it's how you treat all of those people. It's about lifting up Jesus in everything we do as expressions of worship because he fulfilled all of it. It's not have-tos, it's gets-to. It's response to the great love that our God has first given to us. It is the fulfillment of all that he was doing for thousands of years with his people. We now get to understand. We now get to live in the fulfillment of what it was meant to be. And so I would encourage you to live in that fulfillment. This is one of the reasons we take you to communion every week. It's to remind us of his broken body. So we break that cracker like his body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and I. Because he is the one who fulfilled the law. All the regulations, all the, you know, we don't have to go and wash our clothes and then go in and sacrifice for ourselves and go back out and wash our clothes and sacrifice for other people. Because Jesus paid it all. He fulfilled the law. And I think our worship needs to be broader and deeper and higher and longer. Because our God is amazing. The band's going to come up. Do a couple songs, and as they do, we invite you to take communion. If you need prayer, there's going to be some deacons and elders in the back. And, you know, I don't know if you maybe never even thought about it like this or never even heard or understood the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, if you would like to follow Jesus and commit your life to him, they'd love to pray with you about that. I mean, if you are someone who, who's followed Jesus and yet thought, you know, this is all about me, it's all about what I do, I have to fulfill all of this lost stuff myself. And today might be the first time you hear this great expression of grace that God has offered to you. Well, they'd love to pray with you about that as well. Because our God is a God of grace and mercy. Uh, there's offering boxes on the side wall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Again, we don't pass a plate, like I said. It's all about what God calls in us. 
and there's food and stuff in the back. We invite you to grab something to eat, maybe meet some other people. Maybe you don't have any friends at all, and we would like you to find some today. You know, and so maybe this week you go out for lunch and, and maybe talk about some of these questions with your new friends, you know, and maybe how to understand of, of living uh, a life of worship that is long and deep and wide and, and understanding the graciousness of the God who has come to save us. Make worship central to your life in everything you do, not just, again, in this room. But as you walk out these walls, just think, you have this entire world that you get to display the grace and the love of Jesus too. So start to display it. You know, not because you have to, but because you get to. Because we're responding to the great love which was first given to us. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we would be a people who understand what it means to have worship that is costly. That we don't just live in a way that we make it all about ourselves. We live in a way where we sacrifice and we give. As a small reminder of the God who has sacrificed and given to us. Father, I ask that you teach us to have our worship be central of you, that our lives would be focused upon you, that you would be the center and not ourselves and not our stuff and not our jobs. Father, not even our families, but that you would be first. And out of that would come the love for our families and the love for our friends. Out of that we would come how we participate at our workplaces and participate at schools because we first have you central to our lives. We ask that you teach us how to worship in purity, understanding that your righteousness has been given to us and that we live rightly in this world by an act of grace by you. And that you would teach us as a people how to worship joyfully. How that our lives, even in the midst of the worst, could still have a reflection of the great joy that you had as you went to the cross to die for us. That joy doesn't mean that we're always happy. But it does mean that we have a deep and abiding hope and a love for who you are and what you've done and what you continue to do. Teach us to live lives with the centrality of worship of you in the center of all that we do. Because you are a great and holy and good God who has saved us. Quite frankly, when we didn't deserve it. But then we never have deserved it. So today, have us live graceful lives full of understanding that you have fulfilled the law for us. And you lead us into greater and greater displays of hope. So that the world would know that you are God and you are good. And we ask this in your son's good name. Amen.